When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my show today, October the 3rd, 2023. I'm interviewing Professor Parks Kobo about his new book, The Collapse of a Nationalist China, How Jiang Kai-shek Lost China's Civil War, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Parks, thank you so much for sitting down with me to chat about your new book, which I like so much. So for our listeners, could you please make self-introduction, tell us where you were born, for example, where you went to school, how you became interested in writing such a book, and who has inspired you, etc. Thank you so much, Parks. Well, thank you, Dong, for inviting me to do this. I was born and grew up in South Carolina, and I went to the University of South Carolina as an undergraduate, where I developed a strong interest in Chinese studies. This was several decades ago, and there weren't a lot of places to study. And I was really interested in Republican China, which was a field that really had not been developed very much. So I went to the University of Illinois, where I was fortunate to study with the late Lloyd Eastman, one of the pioneers of the field. And after getting my PhD, I got a job at the University of Nebraska, where I had been teaching for over 40 years. This book actually is a throwback in some ways, because in the acknowledgments I dedicated in memory of Lloyd Eastman, because the questions I'm trying to answer in this book were ones that came up literally half a century ago in classes I was taking to him. And I now feel that I was in a position to work on them and answer them. That's great to know that you are a former student of Lloyd Eastman. Great. And I read, obviously, many of his brilliant works. I enjoyed reading your new book immensely, Parks, especially the last four chapters and conclusion. And I think at some point, it was quite amusing to see you wrote yourself into the episode of history involving ROC and Jiang Kai-shek. So you've done a great service to the academic community and civil society. Research on World War II's China theater 
and the history of Republic of China in the mainland is abundant. Given Chiang Kai-shek's prominence as the leader of nationalist China and later Taiwan, or rather the Republic of China in Taiwan, from 1927 or 28 approximately to his death in 1975, many people have written about him. So how different is your work? What main messages um, do you intend to convey to the readers, Parks? Well, uh, as you know, this isn't really a biography of John Kaishek at all. It's really an analysis of what is really a pivotal period when the nationalists lost the mainland to the communists. And what I try to do is understand his leadership style and as you know from reading the book, I focused on a really particular issue, the issue of hyperinflation. Through that lens, I tried to understand what I thought were some problems with his leadership role. Zhang did many things that worked out very well, and he did a good job in some ways of changing direction on the island of Taiwan. But this was a major failure, and so I think that's what I was really focusing on. As you know from the book, I really went back to that issue of hyperinflation. Uh, government of China, after the Japanese invaded, had, of course, retreat inland to Chongqing and Sichuan, and they lost most of their revenue base from the, uh, the East Coast. And so they found themselves running big deficits. And Zhang just basically had them keep printing money. And when you just print money that isn't really back, you end up with inflation and then hyperinflation. So uh, just for an example, the base that I used was the six months before the war started, January to June 1937, and a mythical item that had cost one quai by the time of Pearl Harbor would have been almost 20 quai, which isn't really that bad. But after Pearl Harbor and the Pacific War, China's even more cut off. And so they... They kept rolling the money out so that by uh, December of 1944, that item would cost 755 kwai. And on the time of Japanese surrender, it would cost a staggering 2,647. So it really, the value of the currency was just gutted. And then after the war, there was a brief retreat. But by July 47, that same item would be almost 30,000 kwai. And when FABI, the legal tender system, was abandoned for the gold yuan on August 21st, 1948, almost 5 million. So something you bought on the street in 1937 would cost you 5 million. And this was really a devastating policy, I think, in many ways. So I, what I tried to do was to understand there were two questions I thought that had not been answered. Eastman worked very much on the impact of this on the the ability of the nationalist army talked about the corruption and how it really did not fare well in the Ichigo campaign late in the war against Japan or later against the communists. And there were the two questions I thought were, well, first of all, Japan, I mean, China won the war. You know, they were on the winning side. And the argument had always been, well, they retreated inland. They couldn't get their tax revenue. They lost maritime customs. But after the war is over, they were back on the East Coast. They could tax tariffs. 
there was a lot of damage, but many of the textile mills, for example, were back in operation within a few months. The harvest was pretty good, both rice and cotton. So why couldn't they break the chain and get rid of the hyperinflation? They had assistance from the United States, including the money that came through the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration that provided substantial aid. China was the largest recipient of that aid after the war, and they couldn't do that. And the second thing was just the very obvious question is, everybody looked at this and they thought that it was an insane policy. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't getting the job done. And no one could quite figure out why they couldn't change the policy. It was sort of like a train careening down a track toward a ravine where the bridge is out. And they put barriers up and they, you know, signal. And the engineer just just keeps shoveling more coal in the engine and the train speeds up. Everybody knows it's going to be a disaster. So that those are the two questions. Now, I should say, these came up in my graduate studies half a century ago, but I started graduate school in 1968, which means I'm really old. <laughs> but of course, that was the, the start, at, well, the height of the Cultural Revolution. And when I finished my degree, Mao was still alive. When I started at Nebraska, I'd never been to the mainland. And as an American, the first time I went, and not long after that, was on one of those U.S.-China people's friendship tours that were highly structured. Frankly, it was 20 years before I ever did any real academic research in mainland. I worked in Taiwan, but John Kashek was still alive. And the archives were controlled not by the government as they are today, but by the Guomindang Party. And they were really not helpful. So new sources had to open up, and they have in the last few years. Yeah, but the topics you pursued, Parks, are so much relevant to our today's world. You know, it's a fantastic case study for many of us to reflect upon from different angles, so to me, it's fascinating to explore, particularly the financial economic side of the political collapse of, of the Republic of China in, main, in the mainland. It's highly relevant, as I said. So maybe we, we will get into more details in a moment, but first, May I ask you about the archival and library work you conducted? Can I ask you what kind of primary and secondary sources you used to make the case? And also, I'm curious, were there any sources that surprised you besides you found yourself actually in the archives? <laughs> Maybe I'll explain that last reference. I... At the end of the book, I had followed the career of T.B. Song and H.H. H. Kong, and they left China. They did not, well, Kong visited Taiwan, but they didn't go to Taiwan, came to the States. And the Sterling Seagrave published this book called The Song Dynasty, in which he just uh, repeated a lot of stuff that he didn't really have evidence for. He said that they were among the richest men in the world, and they had stole all this money, and their fortune could be $6 billion for Song. 
And so at the Hoover Archives, the friend of T.D. Song, who had been the executor of his estate, an American who had worked for with China during the war, probated his estate. And, you know, he was worth, the estate was, he wasn't poor, but it, it was 10 million, which is rich, but it isn't 6 billion or one of the richest people in the world. But as I'm reading in the archives in the Hoover Institute, I come across a letter he sent to Song's daughter and some of his grandchildren recommending my first book, um, <laughs> the, the Shanghai Capitalist and the Nationalist Government of China. And I thought, you know, you're really old when you find yourself in the archives. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that was quite a, a surprise, I guess I would say. Yeah, but I think it, it can be attributed to your long-lasting religious scholarship that can stand the test of time. And yeah, I think that's probably the good part about being an academic means professionally in general, we are required to be neutral, not to take really very, of course, base, we have to base our judgment on the sources available to us. So I think that is a nice compliment to you. Well, uh, going back to that question of sources, as I said, 50 years ago, I couldn't, I couldn't approach working on these questions. There were no sources. And so I didn't know if I ever would work on it. But then about a decade ago or so, I decided I could. The foundation of a lot of the study is actually Chinese scholarship. My scholars in mainland China who are cited in, in the text who began to work on Zhang Kai-shek. And I think the diaries stimulated a lot of, of that work uh, or at least spurred it on. I did particularly single out Professor Wu Jingping uh, of the History Department at Fudan who invited me over I think there were seven conferences I got invited to, all basically on this topic, and I was allowed to present a paper of these and got critiques and suggestions from Chinese scholars. And as you know, when you go to a conference in China, at least in the old days before COVID, you would bring a suitcase full of books and you would exchange books and I would come back with all this new scholarship. The second thing was the Hoover Institution most of the archival material I use there, the TV Sung papers, the H.H. Kong papers, uh, Arthur Young's papers. I think I used a dozen different major collections there in this book. And it they just have become this, of course, the diaries are there, the centerpiece for a lot of work on Republican China. And then finally, Taiwan really just opened up the archives, which are now really controlled by the government. But I particularly cited the the secretariat of John Kai-shek had this daily record of everything he did. And the photo facsimile reprint done by the Guan, 86 volumes. Each volume is several hundred pages. They cover two to three months. And they're not easy to read. They're mostly handwritten. But everything he did from the time he got up, he usually had Bible study or this, that, or the other. Every person he met, documents he got, documents were written under his name, occasionally quoting from the diaries, uh, even things like went strolling with Madame Zhang after dinner, or sometimes he would say gazed at fish, which I assume means meditation in front of a, <laughs> a fish pond. I don't know. But I mean, the, the thing about it was, Zhang Kai-shek is still very elusive. Even you read the diaries, 
you don't really quite understand what he's thinking and what he's not telling you. But you can figure out what he did every minute of every day and what he didn't do. And one thing he didn't do was really meet with financial officials. He was very focused on military, but he left the finances go way too long, which I think was the problem. Yeah, that's true. My impression of Zhang, of course, is that uh, he was quite morally self-examining, you know, a very disciplined person. But of course, he came from this military background. So in that sense, it is no surprising that he focused on the military dimension of governing <laughs> The ROC in the mainland, of course, dealing with the the Chinese Communist Party. So that is really quite uh, interesting for you to make that conclusion, to point uh, to the financial side, actually his uh, disadvantages during his years uh, in the mainland. But very often, I, I also feel he's kind of... Uh, he was kind of unlucky, but uh, let's get into that later when we discuss his years in Taiwan. Now, um, you wove your story chronologically, starting from the sharp turn of nationalist China's fate around late 1944 and early 1945. So on the one hand, um, Chiang Kai-shek was riding high with great success in elevating the Republic of China to a great power status. He was really quite a nationalist with the support of President Roosevelt. Chiang's China was holding the China seat and vetoing right as one of the five permanent member states on the United Nations Security Council until 1971. We know that to this day, actually, India is still pursuing that kind of uh, status. So on the other hand, Japan's Operation Ichigo, a successful military campaign carried out uh, in nationalist China, caused a great difficulty for Chiang Kai-shek's government uh, to fund it's 8 million soldiers, arguably. How did the loss to Japan of many Chinese productive areas impact hyperinflation, Chinese banks, exchange rate of nationalist China's currency and Chiang Kai-shek's relations with the United States? It's a, it's a long question. <laughs> One of the statistics I gave at the, uh, earlier was that between January 1945 and August, hyperinflation actually accelerated dramatically. And that's really the result of Ichigo because uh, about half of the area of nationalist China was cut off. So the rice from Hunan and areas like that, they've been requisitioning rice directly from peasants. So all of those soldiers retreated but all the rice just had to come from Sichuan, which actually worsened things fairly dramatically. But the other thing is that hyperinflation is kind of a, it's kind of a psychological thing. It, when you got paid in Fabi any, for anything, it's hot money. It's losing value literally by the hour. 
So everybody frantically rushes out and buys anything they can because they don't want to hold the money. And that creates this psychology of hyperinflation. And so like you would rush out, you could buy gold or silver if it was illegal, but in the black market, or you would even buy things like a, a bag of flour, which is a problem because it could be deteriorate with vermin and, you know, mold. But it was better than holding this currency. And as a consequence, Arthur Young, who was the financial advisor earlier in that year, had thought that they could get out of this conundrum. But he anticipated the war would last longer than it did. Nobody knew about atomic bomb, of course. But I think that in China, because Japan had been so successful when 45 started, they control more territory than ever. Uh, they thought the war was going to go on and on, and everybody thought there would be an amphibious landing on the southeast coast of China. Uh, we were still, the United States was helping, working with Dai Li to train commandos. The Japanese thought so. They actually repositioned their troops well into June. And I think he thought that if they could do that and establish a beachhead, uh, then a port could open up and commodities could flow into China. And once that happened, uh, people who had been hoarding would suddenly want to get rid of their stuff because they thought uh, prices would go down. Now, that didn't happen. And the other thing was most of the people living in eastern and southeastern China were using the people in the occupied areas, currency issued by the Wang Jingwei government. And they wanted to, he said they could, in an orderly fashion, retire those notes. Well, when Japan suddenly surrendered, China didn't. Well, I mean, Zhang wasn't there on the East Coast. Uh, you know, it just the bombs fell, the Soviet Union enters the war, Japan surrenders, and the United States has to really air, help airlift uh, soldiers back. American Marines landed in many of the coastal cities, and they basically trashed the Wang Jingwei government. They they valued it way undervalued. It was a big mistake, and so most of the people in the occupied area were impoverished, but they had to get Fabi because they needed it. So all these people. They called them the vultures, flew in from or came in from Sichuan and started buying things up, gold, silver, whatever. And that just set off inflation all over again. By October of 1945, inflation had come roaring back. The psychology was never broken. And I think that was, and then American sailors and soldiers were spinning right and left. I mean, it just, the whole thing just kind of, the Ministry of Finance did a study and said, well, yes, there was a, it was unpublished. It, there was a period of a few weeks where prices went down. And then by the fall, hyper in, our inflation hit Shanghai like a typhoon. It went right back in the same mold. And then Zhang decided that he wanted to print more money because he wanted to fight the communists, you know, with the military. There's a quote, I'll just read this from Arthur Young's private diary. It is a great pity for China that Zhang does not understand finance and will still take action without consulting those who do. He feels that those who predicted financial collapse before are wrong and that it will not happen. He got the country through eight years of war and now wants his own way with spending and finance. So I think that kind of sums it up. He was he had a set idea. He was kind of stubborn. Yeah. And uh, he didn't like people who weren't yes men, like many <laughs> important leaders, I think. <laughs> and uh, as a result, he never quite got the bad news and, and until it was kind of a disastrous situation. Yeah, true. I got the impression that Jiang Kai-shek was stubborn. <laughs> Indeed. I yes, mean, I think so. 
Yeah, but you know he had that many、uh, American educated actually specialists or you know other people who were doing finances and、um, the economy. But、uh, I just、uh, feel that the this group of people didn't have really the huge influence upon him financially. <laughs> No, I、uh, well. The last part of the book, as you know, I look at the style of leadership of Jung, and actually, this goes back to Eastman.、Uh, when I was in grad school, he was working on the book called "The Abortive Revolution" about the Nanjing era, ten years, twenty-seven to nineteen thirty-seven, and he thought one of the problems was Eastman. I mean, some of the, that Jung tried to have. He had about twenty different job titles. He wanted to center power on himself. And his style was to set up competing、um, agencies that duplicated each other and let them fight it out, and that way it kept anyone from being too powerful. And for example, in the intelligence work, he had Dai Li and the military intelligence, and then he had、uh, the CC cliques, party intelligence, and they spent all of their time fighting each other. But one fallout from that was that. Um, it compromises their effectiveness because the communists and the Japanese just infiltrated the、uh, Guomindang government and the party, and they had all kinds of intelligence、um, that just they didn't do a good job of the agencies, and I think that's part of it. Now, in finance,、uh, a lot of the book is devoted to the rivalry that develops between TV Song Song Se Wan, Madam Zhang's brother, of course. And、uh, his brother-in-law, who is、uh, Kung Chang Chi H H Kong, who's Song Ai Ling's husband, and they both were American-educated.、Um, uh, but between from twenty-seven really until the end of the war with Japan, they were the two main focuses. Song was a finance minister, and then he was ousted because he would not do quite everything Zhang wanted. And Kong came in for ten years. And they,、uh, the rivalry kind of surprised me because I worked on these people for a long time. But what happens in the Hoover archives is you get into all the personal correspondence, and the two men and other archives that have come out, you just see how they became. It was very bitter and personal, even though they still had kind of family things going on.、Um, but Sung was very ambitious, but he was not very.、Uh, He was way too headstrong, and he, John, would get furious with him, and he would be in the doghouse. And Kong was more easygoing, but Song did not agree with some of these policies, like the hyperinflation. But he was so ambitious, he wouldn't risk. After the first time, he got really smacked down by Chang. He would go along with it, and so、um, it was actually under his watch that things got worse. And after Kong was kind of retired because he became too problematic,、um, Zhang seemed to let other people, like the legislative yuan, there were these vicious attacks on Song,、um, and they got in the press,、uh, and you know they could censor those things if they wanted to. But I think Zhang wanted to be sure he kept them both at bay, and he would get what he wanted, which was more money. <laughs> As it were, so I think that was kind of the core of the book. I got to really look, I got an inside look at how Zhang 
operated uh, and his style of leadership. And of course you get, you know, I'm this correspondence there between uh, Song Bei Ling and Song, TV Song and, um, and Song Chingling also, you know, this writing from her. So you really get a good idea of kind of the inner dynamics of the family, which you wouldn't get. Um, I mean, some of these things, I went out to Hoover a long time ago and most of the um, uh, archives, a lot of them were still closed. Um, some of the Arthur Young stuff. I remember uh, a lot of the TV song collection was closed until Madame Zhang died and you were supposed to wait. Well, of course, she lived to be, what, 104 or something like that. Yeah, very so, long lived. Very long. So it wasn't uh, until I realized they were all open uh, that, you know, you could work on this. So Yes, thank you. Mm, Parks, do you think... Um the high concentration of economic power in the hands of a few magnates uh, created the problem, or you think uh, Chiang Kai-shek himself shared more of the so-called blame during this period? Well, I mean, go back to what you said earlier. He, he had a bad draw for this. I mean, the fact is it would have been very difficult given the large size of the military and the expenses and the isolation of China during the war, it would have been really difficult to have done much better. They could have done better. Uh, I guess I thought the pivotal thing was the failure to recognize that when the war ended, the top priority over even military should have been to stabilize the economy. Uh, but Zhang went whole hit strong into military action. And so he didn't uh, reduce spending at all. Um, you know, I think there's another quote, if I can find it. Um, I, I have a quote in the book from Claire Chenault, who was head of the Flying Tigers. Yes. And he was a true believer. He went to China uh, to advise the Chinese government before Pearl Harbor. He stayed in the American military during the war there. He deeply admired Zhang and especially Madame Zhang. So when the war is over, he wanted to stay. He did stay and organize a commercial airlines called the Flying Tigers that later CIA kind of took over. But <laughs> he wanted to, um, he thought he could really help Zhang because he knew China, he knew aviation. And he. this is a letter he wrote to, if I can find it, uh, the letter uh, to General Wiedemeyer, um, who was the top American military commander at the time. And he said, it may interest you to know that our airline payroll for the last two weeks weighed slightly over one ton in currency and that it took five men four days to count it into bundles. And he has lost faith. He, he got over there. He cannot understand why they can't, you know, you can't operate an airline. He eventually had to close down, uh, but it just became impossible. And he didn't understand why the government couldn't change their policy. And I think, you know, that's someone who was a true believer. And so I think this widespread feeling that the government is just not in, in control of the situation is off course or go back to the train wreck, you know, <laughs> ignoring the fact that the bridge is out is really 
a lot of what went wrong there in the in the Civil War period. Yeah, speaking of the financial downfall of nationalist China, I wonder, Park, how his Chiang uh, Kai-shek's chief rival Mao Zedong and the Communist Party financed uh, their own army in wartime and the civil war. Were they also the carpet beggars who capitalized on Japan's invasion of nationalist China? I mean, they were, the CCP has been very strong with um, strong on propaganda and um, persuasion or um, whatever we want to uh, term it um, since, since the late 1920s. Uh, yeah, they were very good at it. So I wonder how they survived, how they financed their army and personnel. Well, as you know, in the book, I have almost nothing to say about the communists, but that's because uh, a lot has been said. In other words, there's so much literature on uh, how the communists won that I thought I would focus on the other side. But I think it goes back to the circumstances, the conditions of wartime China, both against the war with Japan and against the um, uh, the communist, were the the the, uh, the communists were more effective. Their approach to organizing, being very low key in there. I mean, they're down with the people and taxing peasants and organizing them, um, and also living off the land a bit better. That was better suited to those conditions. Zhang tended to have a military that needed more money, more weapons. Uh, you know, it, it was his style. And um, the, the, in the long run, I think that proved to be less effective than what the communists were doing. The other thing is that in the Civil War period, uh, I mean, Zhang did initially look like fairly well. I think that his strategy, military strategy, which has been debated over and over, uh, left a lot of his units vulnerable because he, he stretched them out too far. And But uh, the bottom line is when things started to go bad, uh, whole armies defected. I mean, between what, November 48 and uh, February 49, one and a half million soldiers switched sides or you know surrendered. And I think a lot of that had to do with the low morale in the Guomindang military. And some of that went back to the corruption and the, the poor treatment of the enlisted men, you know, who often the officers were uh, raking money off and, and, you know, they weren't, the soldiers weren't getting proper food. And so on, not all of them, but especially in Manchuria, but uh, I, um, I'm a little kinder than Eastman was when he was writing. Uh, because I've actually read enough memoir literature and stuff to realize that it wasn't a matter of greed so much or corruption in that sense. It was really a matter of survival. Uh, if your paycheck is virtually worthless, uh, if you're going to survive, you've got to steal from the office. So you pilfer, you know, food or whatever, but that's what you need to get by. And um, it just, uh, it led to a real sharp decline in morale. And I think that's one reason it was kind of like a house of cards collapsing 
Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I have read some work on on mouse um, financing during the nineteen um, forties. It is allegedly <laughs> said that um, they smuggle opium and uh, other things to uh, to make ends meet. But anyway, so that is a totally different topic uh, we could chat about later on. Um, but uh, do you think in hindsight, uh, were there any real possibilities for Jiang Kai-shek and his uh, arch enemy, Mao Zedong, to reconcile with each other, uh, adopting you know, a non-military approach to each other? Uh, I really don't. I mean, I just think that uh, by the time of the war with Japan, the, the two men and the two movements were totally at loggerheads. And the only time they ever pretended not to be was when Mao was sometimes trying to show that he would be to Stalin and Ajang to, uh, uh, to Truman, you know, that was our marshal. That was just, I mean, I don't think there was any real possibility because they were such bitter enemies by this point. Um, and, you know, I guess I'm I'm the type, you don't rewrite history, it happened the way it did. The reason they were in that position is a long history from the 20, I mean, these two men knew each other, they, you know, the two movements knew each other. There was a long, very bitter history from the 20s up to 49, that created the conditions and leadership. And I just, I don't see any lost chance or any of that happening, but um, maybe in a parallel universe, it might've worked out, but it just wasn't in the cards in my view. Now, the other question you raised this earlier is how did Zhang sort of reinvent himself in Taiwan? And um, that's, I haven't worked on this. It isn't it's a lot of good work out. Um, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the scholar at, the Hoover Institution, um, who uh, published the book with Harvard on, uh, I think, well, maybe not with Harvard. Anyway, um, there's a lot of good work out on that. And I think there are a variety of things involved. But um, I think John did learn something from uh, the fall of the mainland. And a lot of the people that he had relied on in, in China, like his brothers-in-law, uh, did not go to Taiwan. He He had kind of a new set of people, and he incorporated a kind of a new elite uh, that um, I think were uh, did a good job there in restoring an economic basis for what Taiwan became, with a lot of American aid and trade advantages and a Japanese-educated um, business class and that kind of thing from the colonial period. So there's a lot different in Taiwan. But... Um, uh, that's a whole other story, as we say. Yeah, no. Oh, one thing I have learned is if you want to get a book done, you got to tell one story, finish it. Because I know some people just hang on to stuff. And I like to, I did, it took me 10 years, eight years for this book. And so that's long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Two. On the other hand, showing, you know, what is your viewpoint on China's uh, past and ongoing problem does it i mean lie in 
its own top leaders' obsession with unification, or I would say unification of diverse aspirations and peoples throughout modern and uh, contemporary history, or should a structural, systematic, uh, systemic one-person rulership be held responsible for the collapse of um, the Republic of China in 1949 in the mainland, as well as the financial troubles facing today's um, the People's Republic. Well, I don't draw any particular statements out in the book, but obviously I point to the example of an authoritarian ruler who tried to centralize all power in himself, who was very stubborn and uh, had difficulty changing policies. And any authoritarian ruler in human history, one of the things you have to do is not let your subordinates get too powerful. So you deliberately keep them weak and you don't really anoint a successor. And, um, you know, you could see some of that in China today where um, the cabinet kind of system that, that Deng Xiaoping had put in place has been replaced by more of a centralized authority in which power resides really with one person. And um, if, he decides we should have zero COVID policy um, and he can't change his mind until it's clear he has to. He just, they don't explain it. They just say, okay, it's gone. <laughs> and uh, if there are problems with the new policy, uh, the data isn't released. I mean, that's kind of the way things, I see things kind of going. Yeah, let's um, maybe go back to the point you made earlier about the CCP infiltration of Chiang Kai-shek's army and the government. Um, by the 1940s, I think violent this Soviet Bolshevikism, Bolshevism, militant anti-imperialism, radical nationalism, and communist autocracy beguiled so many Chinese intellectuals, businessmen, soldiers, peasants, and others. I have been reading quite a lot of memoirs written by um, some mainlanders, um, mainland Chinese um, professionals who went to actually university during the 1940s. And uh, one thing that struck me is that, uh, my goodness, they all um, <laughs> they all actually um, recalled or confessed they were either the party member at the time or they were the so-called at the time. It's the progressive uh, um, youth. So how would you assess the entrenched infiltration into Jiang's um, army and government by the CCP members to act as influencers from within. Well, I mean, I think that you can understand the appeal that communism would have had at that time. And, um, you know, Jiang's approach to handling the student movement was just, you know, boom, squash it. And I think that um, 
you know, like trying to revive Confucian learning and things like that. And um, I, it just did not appeal to the students. I think one of the striking things that I focused, though, was you can almost see that labor and students would not be pro Zhang, but he lost the capitalist. I mean, that that is, I haven't covered that, but in the um, uh, the chapter on the Gold Yuan reform, um, he alienated at the last minute virtually all of the capitalists. And a lot of them left China. Some of them came back. But, um, you know, the, you'd think the capitalists would be against communism. But uh, I think in 49, a lot of them weren't sure that it wouldn't be better. Now, by the maybe by the 50s, they wouldn't have thought that. But at the time, um, I actually went to a conference, gosh, 15 years ago, uh, Sherm Cochran organized at Cornell about uh, the original title of the conference is something they stayed, they went away or they came back. It was about individual chapters on different capitalists who some left and never came back, some uh, left and then came back and they looked at the different alternatives uh, and Essentially, that alerted me at the time to the fact that um, that the capitalists really had lost faith in the Zhang government. Now, this is 4950, um, and there was still movement at that time where, you know, if you had gone to Hong Kong, you could maybe go back or you could leave China and go to Hong Kong, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, they had lost really a, con a constituency that should have supported them. Um, so it really is kind of a demoralization of, of the movement at that point. Well, I mean, I had the quote from Claire Chenault, you know, <laughs> I mean, he's the true believer, the foreigner who believes in Zhang, and yet he can't, he wants to help, and yet he can't because he can't operate a business in under those conditions, you know. Yeah, true. Um, the irony is that uh, for those who decided to stay, in 1949, 1950, to stay in the mainland. Later, obviously, they would have even a more miserable um, fate um, than those who followed Jiang to, to Taiwan. Um, I would imagine it, it was such an humiliating experience for Jiang Kai-shek. Look at this man, you know, he worked hard to lift China to a great power status. And uh, then he fought hard against uh, Japanese in invasion. And then, <laughs> then he was chased, retreat. he had to retreat to Taiwan. So have you encountered any sources on his own reflection on those um, humiliating years um, by the late 1940s? I, um, I have not worked on this at all. Now, I was in Taiwan those years. Uh, I saw John Kai-shek I think one of the last times he appeared uh, at Double Ten, um, and I was back in Taiwan when they dedicated the memorial. Um, 
But I mean, I don't know. I think I haven't looked at this is a biography of his entire life, lengthy biography by Alexander Pensoff. And perhaps I, I think he covers a lot the Taiwan period. So I might that might have some answers for that. But you know, I really actually think that he thought that um with American help, there would be an uprising in Taiwan and I mean in China. And maybe he could retake the mainland. I mean, I, you know, I mean, that's what they always said, but uh, you could be self-delusional about that. And, um, uh, you know, certainly when the Great Leap Forward was going on and the Cultural Revolution, you know, things did not look good on the mainland. And, um, you know, who knows? So he may have convinced himself that it was going to happen. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about... Uh... The um, 1970s Taiwan, you, a moment ago you mentioned you went there when Chiang Kai-shek was still alive. So how was it like um, as compared to today's uh, Taiwan? It must have been very different, right? Oh, yeah. Night and day. Um, the food was good, <laughs> the same. Uh, I mean, not in, well, the, for the start, but well, first of all, I, when I went there, I was there almost not two years, a year and a half, maybe. I was still studying language. Um, and then I worked, Academia Seneca uh, had a good library and they were very open, but they didn't really have much on the Nanjing period. Uh, there were a lot of publications. There were things like, uh, you know, Juanji once read the biography journal would publish all of these stories by all these people and you know if you read through a lot of them you got some idea of these people had been on the mainland they ended up in Taiwan and you know how they were thinking and that kind of thing uh but at the the Guamindang archives itself um they were I mean I went out there quite often but um you didn't really see what I would call archival stuff I got to read um they had original copies of Guo Wanzhou Bao, I think, the newspaper. And uh, you could read those. And that was very helpful for that first book. I used a lot of that material. But um, now you can read that online or on microfilm, you know, anywhere, really. Um, but that was, that was very helpful. But I didn't really see. Um, I went down. I spent one day at... Um, the Guomindang, the Chiang Kai-shek archives were then down at near Taichung and some, and I went down there and they greeted me and they took my picture and we had tea and that was it. I didn't see any documents. So, um, and I knew Lloyd Eastman had worked there a lot. He told me, you know, you won't be able to see this and that and the other. And then um, I think every 60 or maybe every 90 days you had to leave Taiwan and I flew to Hong Kong which of course is a British colony, and you could buy books there. And um, uh, I did go to the University Service Center, but I wasn't working on the communist. So, um, but that was, you know, that was good to kind of get a broader perspective. And I did stop in Japan um, uh, and mostly just bought books there. So that was, you know, what I did as a graduate student in those days. But I didn't go to China. I think I took the train from um, Kowloon Station up to the border, what is now 
Shenzhen and looked over with binoculars at Red China. That was it. So um, I didn't see Shanghai until I was already an assistant professor. Um, and I'd actually already published a book on Shanghai in the 30s. But um, at that day, in those times, uh, it looked a lot like um, what it had looked like in the 30s. So um, I remember I went in the um, that Japanese hotel that was the old French club and the stair marble staircase. And uh, a British scholar and I were in uh, the, the archives the next day and he was looking at a picture from the 30s and it was the same staircase. You know, they at that time, they Shanghai had not, uh, there wasn't that much new there. So it was, and I really, I'm glad I got to see it at that time because uh, if you are there today, you would never imagine um, what really the 70s would, would have been like, you know, in 80s even. That's fascinating. I hope we will have a, another opportunity later on to chat about the 1970s. Um, very important era, of course. Um, Anyway, Parks, uh, thank you so much. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. And I want to ask you a final question is, um, do you still plan to uh, to write something um, new later on? Well, I, I won't say that I'm not, but I'm retiring at the end of this academic year. Um, I'm not sure I have another book in me at this point, but I have enough I have enough material in my basement <laughs> to make a good start. Uh, originally, before I got this book finished, I was thinking I would like to write a study of the rise and fall of private banking in China, looking at the rise of the private banks, modern banks, and then through the consolidation in the early 50s. Um, I'm not sure if that um, is what I'll do. Uh, I have a colleague in American history who's writing his memoirs, who's <laughs> retired. And I thought, well, are mine really that interesting? But I'm I'm thinking about it. So uh, who knows? You know, I, I um, you were when you get ready to retire, you start to reflect on uh, all the things you've been through and what's happened and uh, how different things are. And um, uh, I'm not sure if it's they're that interesting, but I'll I'll give it a thought anyway. That's great, and um, thank you so much for spending the time with me today, Parks. Well, thank so, you for inviting me. Yeah, have a good day. 